Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 75th episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. Biblical detail, historical context that puts you in the action. With no light at the end of this COVID-19 tunnel, we realize that isolation has become real for many of you out there. As human beings, we're meant for community. We're meant for each other. We inspire one another to become better versions of ourselves, to be those God has designed us to be. And one of the unintended consequences of fully avoiding one another during this time has resulted in sheer isolation, even mental anguish for many. But it doesn't have to be that way. Many of you who listen to this podcast may not be aware that we started a small congregation out of our home nearly two years ago. And we want you to know two things. Number one, we've got a small but wonderful family of Christ followers who faithfully join us each Monday night. Yep, you heard me right. We meet on Monday nights. Two, if you're without a church family, then we just ask that you consider checking us out. Right now, we are Zooming together, but we're hoping to aim to resume our gatherings out from our home once again. Stay tuned for more info about that over the next couple of weeks. If you would like to learn more or just want to check us out, Zoom call information is on our website at nextsteps.org. I'll just spell it for you. N-E-X-T-E-P-S dot O-R-G. Look for the copy cups. Anyways, let's get into our episode. Our episode begins right after Paul presents his case to a packed room in a synagogue. What was the nature of his message? Well, Paul shared his own story about how he was confronted by a risen Jesus while walking on the road to Damascus while looking to destroy the newly formed Christ follower communities. It's likely that this was the first time those in the room heard a message quite like this. And as you might imagine, many of those who heard it had a lot of questions. And so with that, let's get started. Pressed at every angle by a horde of men and women alike, spellbound by the defining incidents surrounding Paul's conversion, Paul and Silas alike try to respond to the flurry of questions being thrown at them. You were struck blind, one asks. How is it that you now see? The effects were somewhat temporary, Paul quickly remarks. God certainly had my attention, that's for sure. Interrupting his response, someone else shoots out an unrelated question. What was it like to be trained under Gamaliel? He's a good, Paul starts before yet another shouts above him. What a Messiah, the voice yells out. Noticing the familiar voice coming from behind them, the crown looks back and lets the man through. Paul's attention fixes on the question and then the man who asks it. Okay, well, what's your question? Benjamin comes into clear view and the crowd tightly circles around the two. You said it yourself. Messiah would come as our forever king in accordance with the covenant God made with King David. I did, Paul responds, wondering where this question might be leading. Smiling, Benjamin slowly asks, Messiah has come, as you claim, and yet our lives look no different. 
We continue to live under foreign rule in a land that is not ours. God has not gathered us collectively as a people under his wings once again. He has not restored our fortunes, and we are not possessing the land of our ancestors. Yes, you're right, Paul responds. But don't stop there. Keep going. Benjamin shoots Paul back with a look of puzzlement. I don't. You quote the promise of God given to Moses in the second rendering of the law, yes? Paul asks. Yes, but Benjamin starts. Paul continues, The Lord your God will change your hearts and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will, all eyes in the intimate crowd shift over to Benjamin, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live, Benjamin says. Yes, but that hasn't happened. A real change of heart does not come by obeying the law, Paul says. The law keeps our hearts in check when we begin to stray. As the prophet asked, How long will you wander, my wayward daughter? For the Lord will cause something new to happen. Israel will embrace her God. Yes, you are, Benjamin continues. Something new, something remarkable has happened, Paul continues. God has poured out his spirit upon us because our Messiah has come to remove our much bigger problem. And what is that, Benjamin asks? That the law could not bring about something only the spirit of God could. Paul lets this statement hang for a moment. Changed hearts and God's permanent forgiveness over sin. Seated at a large table in his front room, Jason pulls off a piece from his small flat cake. He then looks over at Paul, shakes his head, and laughs. You know, if it's possible that we might host angels without even realizing it, how much crazier is it to have angels working for you? Silas smiles at this and says, Are you saying that we've been hired? Dad? Jason looks over at his father a few feet away. So what do you think? Should we hire these men? So much for giving us time to mull this over, his dad retorts. Adjusting his stool, Jason looks back at Paul and Silas and calls out, Dad, you should have been there. These men were brilliant as they addressed the entire synagogue yesterday. With a piece of cake still held between his fingers, Jason continues, I had no idea. Here you show up in tattered clothing and lead me to believe that you are simple tent makers. Paul replies, Hey, we are simple tent makers. Silas chimes in. I wouldn't even call me that. I didn't learn this trade growing up. I've had to learn as I've seen this guy do his work. I'm more of a tent making grunt. A persistent knock suddenly comes at the door. You're both far more than that, Jason says as he scoots his chair back to go see who it is. Opening the door, Jason looks out to see a small crowd inquiring about the two men inside. Recognizing some of them, Jason asks, Aeneas, hey, what's up? What are you doing here? Peering past Jason to scout the room, Aeneas sees Silas's head and points. That's why we're here, he says. We want to talk with that guy and his friend. May we come in? Without waiting for a response, Aeneas ducks around Jason and makes his way to the table where the others are sitting. Do! Make yourselves at home! Jason doesn't even finish his sentence as the crowd filters by him. Scratching his head and not knowing what to do, Jason yells out, Hey, Aeneas, I don't have enough food for any of you. I wasn't... 
Aeneas shakes his head as he looks back at Jason from the table. No, no, we're not here for the food anyway. Go about your eating without us being a burden. We just have a bunch of questions that we want answered. Jason sighs as he stares at the mobby scene in front of him. Benjamin looks up at the overcast sky and feels a slight mist upon his face. He smiles at this and says, Isn't it glorious to see how a passing rain can refresh the landscape around us? He then steps aside a puddle and warns Jaden to do the same. Better watch that one, he says. That puddle is deceptively deep. Feeling somewhat unnerved by Benjamin's light-hearted nature, Jaden finally speaks up. My rabbi, he says as he steps around the puddle, it is as I feared these men I warned you about. Oh, there's another one. Watch out, Benjamin says as he points to another puddle. Growing exasperated, Jaden says again, Rabbi, didn't you hear what I just said? These are the guys. They are the ones who have been stealing from our synagogues and starting their own assemblies. My, it's amazing we don't completely get soaked by these, Benjamin announces as he slows down to point out the series of puddles peppered throughout the paved road. Having enough, Jaden steps in front of Benjamin and both come to a halt. Rabbi, you need to pay attention to a pressing reality that confronts us right now. What are we going to do to shut these two men down? Benjamin raises his eyebrows at the man standing inches from his face. He then looks over Jaden's shoulders and stays quiet for the moment. Then, taking a step to the side of Jaden, Benjamin says, My dear Jaden, look with me. Yes, the puddles, Jaden concedes in frustration. What of them? Benjamin points to the dozens of puddles in front of them and traces an imaginary line of sight with his finger. Those puddles, Jaden, will be gone in a matter of days. They dry up just as quickly as they were formed. So we don't worry about their lasting effect, right? Benjamin then looks deeply into the eyes of his protege. Our job right now is to stay clear of the ones that are in front of us and trust that God will guide us along without getting soaked. Do you understand what I'm saying, Jaden? They dig a deep pit to trap others, then fall into it themselves. Shaking his head in frustration, Jaden replies, This is different, Rabbi. They're stealing from our synagogues and rapidly growing their gatherings. Considering this, Benjamin slightly nods his head and then responds, Well then, if God is in this, who are you to stop him? Processing this conversation, a flustered Jaden wanders alone through the marketplace. Over and over he replays the interaction in his head and wishes he had said things differently. How am I supposed to get this message through to this man? He wonders aloud. Hey, what's up, Jaden? A voice calls out. Jaden snaps out of his thoughts and looks up to see the person who called out his name. Hey, Marcus, he finally says. You doing well? Better than you, it seems, Marcus playfully says. You're so lost in that head of yours that you don't even know what's in front of you, man. Hey, you need a map? By the way, you're in Thessaloniki. That help? He says with a laugh. Finally smiling, Jaden teases back. Yeah, you're quite the resource. Next time I trek into the wilderness, I'll make sure to hire you as my guide. Adjusting some of his displayed fabrics, Marcus then asks, What's got you so lost in your head? What? Jaden asks, realizing how he must have appeared. He smiles and says, Nah, nothing. I just got a lot of things going on. 
Out of the corner of his eye, Jaden gets a glimpse of a familiar face. Noticing Jaden's eyes move away from his own and locking onto something behind him, Marcus turns his head and notices the activity. He grimaces and mutters under his breath. Do you know those guys over there? Jaden asks. Who? Jason and his dad? Marcus asks and follows with a sigh. What of them? He asks. What about the other two with them? Jaden asks. Know anything about them? Not much, Marcus says. They pretty much keep to themselves, those two. Oh? Jaden asks in hopes of Marcus continuing. He does. Yeah, they came in about a week ago from whoever the heck knows, dressed in their raggedy clothing, and boom, they just started working for them. Hmm, Jaden says with a nod. What's your problem with Jason, he asks. Becoming redder by the moment, Marcus finally blurts out, Look, we got a little history. My textiles are of exceptional quality, so a while back when I went to Jason's father and showed him my fabrics, I thought we might strike up a nice business arrangement of providing my fabrics for his tents. Okay, Jaden says. What happened? Well, nothing, Marcus says. He ripped one of the fabrics right in front of me and didn't bother with paying for it. Said it was garbage. He points his head at another individual several booths away. Instead, he uses that guy's stuff. Marcus says as he spits on the ground. Hmm, Jaden responds again. What? Marcus asks. The guy's working with him, Jaden says. What about him? Marcus responds. They're moving more product than they ever have, Jaden asserts. These guys are making them more money than Zeus, and your fabric friend is reaping all the benefits. Is that so? Marcus asks. What do you know about them? Jaden lets the question fester for a few moments before responding. I know enough that these guys were ran out of Philippi and half of the cities in Asia before coming here. I know that they're here to screw with us just as they did in the other cities. Is that right? Marcus asks with a tone of anger. And, Jaden continues, it looks like your friend Jason and his dad over there are in on the take. Well, we're going to stop here for today. Things are brewing here in Thessalonica just as they did in Philippi. A different plot line with the same result, right? Paul and Silas arrived in this larger Macedonian city to reason with those in the Jewish faith community, sharing how the long-awaited Messiah had come and offered the kingdom of heaven to Jews and Gentiles alike. As it had been in many Jewish communities in other cities, the receptivity from Jews and Gentile converts alike in those synagogues had been met with mixed reviews. Paul had been beaten nearly to death and run out of town over and over and over. It's almost like he had little regard for what might happen to his own person. He was just recovering from the bruises he and Silas endured in Philippi, remember? As mentioned in last week's podcast, Paul shared how he was on the fast track to becoming one of the most powerful legislators over all Jews and converts under Mosaic law throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. After personally being confronted by a risen Jesus, Paul later pushed everything aside to follow him. His career, his status, his ambitions, his paycheck, and even his sense of purpose. And here's what he writes to encourage the church in Philippi, given this idea. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, 
I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but garbage, rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. That's Philippians 3, 7 through 8. For sure, Paul was a man of single purpose. In Paul's mind, nothing else mattered. It was Jesus or nothing. To Paul's credit, much of Western civilization as we know it today would be deeply impacted by the passion held by this one man who gave up everything else to follow Jesus. (laughs) I'm only one human being, you might tell yourself. What possible difference could I make? Answer, you might be surprised when you develop a laser-like focus for the kingdom. And that's really our point today. Be singular in purpose. To be honest, I think this is one of the greatest challenges we face here living in the land of opportunity. There's a living to be made, a lifestyle to be enjoyed, a family to raise, a life to experience. All of these personal wants, while not bad in and of themselves, in fact, they can be quite a gift from God, but they can easily get in the way of what really matters. Paul drew a line in the sand and made his choice never to look back. For us, especially when there are literally thousands of different things, hobbies, careers, entertainment, fun, that we could be doing with our time, this isn't an easy decision for us. In Paul's day, making ends meet and surviving was the name of the game. Not too many options there. In our day, yes, making ends meet and surviving might still weigh pretty heavily on us, but we have so many options to select from. Besides my work, a quick rundown of my daily schedule includes creating this podcast, developing my culinary skills with my wife, learning Spanish, playing bass, exercise, hiking, overlanding now, that's a term, I'm just learning about it, etc. Needless to say, we like to stay busy. But in all of my busyness, it's so easy to lose perspective and singleness of thought. When reminded with the words of Jesus, I find it necessary to adjust how I carry out my time. Jesus was pretty emphatic about this idea of singularity when he said this, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. So yeah, it's pretty clear. Give your life, including your ambitions, for the sake of following Jesus, who will be your judge. Yikes, right? Yeah, it's easy to give lip service to how much we love Jesus, but inherently, we are being tugged in a number of ways. Here's a truth moment. Our wrestling match is with God here. We're challenging God by saying, you really don't want what's best for me. Only I know what's best for me, so I'm going to do life on my terms. Now, does this mean that we should abandon everything to follow Jesus, including our jobs or our loved ones or family or whatever else we have going? No, that's not what this is saying. God deeply values our loved ones. In fact, he's given them to us as a gift. And he has likely brought us along in our careers to make a difference. Our choosing to follow Jesus starts the journey whereby God changes our perspectives, resulting in a change of our habits and the things that are important to us. 
Yes, many have been called into full-time ministry at some point in their journey, but that won't be the case with most of us. So what does it mean to follow Jesus with a singularity of purpose? Here's what it is. It means that he is the filter for the choices we make. It means we think first, Jesus, how do you want me to proceed from this point? Then we move forward while keeping the kingdom at the forefront of our minds. Now, there's much more to this, but really we do need to wrap up this time together. And let me just maybe encourage you with these final ideas. May you become laser-like in the way that you follow Jesus. May you be one of single purpose whereby you let Jesus filter every decision you make. That's probably enough for now. But have a great week. And with that, let's move forward together.